Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is one of Silicon Valley's first female African-American CEOs, formerly an executive at IBM and chief marketing officer and EVP of sales at two public companies. She was recruited to be the CEO of a then-struggling Silicon Valley startup in 2003, which is now MetricStream. She served as its CEO for 15 years and built it into the industry standard for governance, risk, compliance, and quality software. She currently serves on the boards of Verizon, Nordstrom, Roper Technologies, and Okta. She is also a strategic advisor to the Royal Bank of Canada, Capital Markets Group, and Forbes Ignite. She's the author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms, which is a featured book on one of the best business books of 2020 by Fortune. Now, I've read this book from cover to cover, and the opening brought tears to my eyes. I'm not going to tell you why. No spoiler alert here. And then the final chapter Chapter 39, Planning 101. Look, if you read the beginning and the end of this book, you'll get a lot out of it. But Planning 101 will help you understand how you can plan your life just a little bit better. Well, you'll hopefully know when we're done with this podcast why you need to read this book if you're under 45 years old. Well, it might help if you're over 45, but for the younger people, you need this book. You can either plan and execute your life that you want or let life push you around. Please welcome Shelly Archambault. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Gary. How are you doing today? I know that's a little longer than normal for me, but I I just had to share some things about your book. I'm very excited about what you've done here and taken so much of your wisdom from the time you were a teenager, which by the way, when, spoiler alert, when you decided to become a CEO, when you were like 16, (laughs) I think, you know, <laughs> that's right. Which is like, that's just ridiculous. Okay. Normally yeah. I ask guests about their past experiences and accomplishments. And I'm going to take a little different turn here today because if people want to read that, they can read it in your book. But I'd like to ask you a question. What motivated you to write this book? Ah, really good question. So I have tried throughout my career, Gary, to be accessible. People reach out, you know, then it was emails, phone calls, you know, whatever it might be. And I responded. And when they responded, they wanted to meet to pick my brain, whatever, I would try to do that. As I took on more and more responsibility, though, I just didn't have time to meet with everybody. I was still responsive, but I couldn't meet. And frankly, it was killing me. And the reason it was killing me is I believe that it's important for people who have achieved things, especially people who look like me, to be visible so that others can see that it's possible. And by letting people touch me to know, hey, I'm a real person. I'm down to earth. So if I can do this, you can do this. And I thought, oh, okay. When I get to phase two, I'm just going to write it down because I want to share 
I want to share strategies, approaches, techniques, even some hacks, right? How to improve your odds so that you can get what you want. Because frankly, I find that too many people don't get the opportunity to contribute to even 50 or 60% of their full capability. And I want more people to be able to do that. Can you imagine this country, how vibrant we would be if everybody could actually contribute to just 70 or 75% of their capability and capacity? So I want to give people tools to go get the life they want. Well, so I got a couple of comments on it. Number one, accessibility. When I heard you at the C-suite workshop, and I reached out to somebody within my C-suite network. I said, I have to have Shelly on my podcast. And an email went out. You responded to that introductory email within 30 minutes. So I, I want to make this point because this is all about leadership. And when leaders talk about these great concepts, I want to be accessible and I want to be respo- uh, responsive. Shelly, you live it. And I want people to know that, that you showed that to me immediately. And I, I just, I have to tell you, it, it gave me goosebumps. And, and I immediately reached out. I said, Shelly, of course, you're so busy. You said, well, I can be on your show in a, in a few months. And, and I'm like, this is great because here you are today. So if you're going to make comments about what you value and what's important as a leader, it's not just about the planning. It's about the execution of the plan and being able to role model that day in and day out. And you demonstrated that to me. So let's talk about that. that one of the aspects in your book that really grabbed me as I look at all the, oh God, there's so many lessons in this book that we could talk about. But I want to pull one out in particular that I think is so important in leadership. And I, I've talked about this on my podcast many times where emotional intelligence and cognitive judgment are the only two scientifically measurable characteristics of leadership effectiveness. We can measure both and we can understand where you're at. And behind cognitive judgment is decision-making. And you spend a fair amount of time talking about how you made effective decisions that affected your life, your family, your children, your husband, and this idea of risk versus facts. Can you talk a little bit about that for our leaders and how you kind of came up with that? And, you know, and how did you create that in a culture of a successful company like Metricstream? Mm. So a lot of questions in there. So first, (laughs) first of all, you know, a big premise on the book for me is I wanted to explain the why. I've Mm. read a lot of books that tell me do this, right? Or I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, but I want to understand the why. Uh, So I really tried hard in the book to give the context for the why, because it's back to teach people how to fish versus giving them the fish. Um, And You're right. Decision-making plays a big role in that because, frankly, your life is nothing more than a series of decisions and choices every day all strung together. So Mm -hmm. to me, that is life. And when you think about this whole notion of trying to understand the risks and, you know, making choices and facts, well, the fact piece really came as a way of combating the fear. I mean, when you have to make real hard decisions... I mean, there are ramifications because there's never a good decision. You just try to make the best decision. And the best decision Mm -hmm. means you hope that the outcome will be the best for the majority of stakeholders, right? In terms of what you're trying. But that means some stakeholders, it's not going to be, right? And for some folks, it's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by, you know, there aren't great decisions. They're just the best decisions. And it can become um, frustrating and frankly, almost... um, um, 
I'm trying to think of the word paralyzing. Mm -hmm. If you just keep considering all of the data and all of the information um, that kind of comes, because a lot of it is anecdotal. A lot of it is, you know, storytelling, experiences, emotional, the whole bit, which is all fine. But you really have to be able to parse through what are the facts. And I found that by parsing through to the facts, it actually helped balance the fear around making bad decisions. Because too many, um, too many times, I think we're too slow to make decisions, not too fast. And the longer it takes us to make decisions, the longer the rest of the organization spins. So trying to figure out, okay, how do you cut through it? to be able to make those decisions is really where this whole fact versus fear, you know, don't get frozen, don't get paralyzed. Let's understand what we've got here, right? Let's start peeling it back, right? And that's really how I approach it. Yeah, don't you think that the real intuitive part of this for a leader is understanding that not all facts are created equal? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at it and you've got to make a decision like uh, whether to uh, take a risk that might be risky for your stakeholders that are your investors versus your stakeholders that are customers. And you look at this or employees and you look at it and go, well, you know, somebody's going to suffer here just a little bit. I might have to take a short term loss to help our customers in the long term to build our business. So people know that we're there for them. Mm-hmm. Right. So all facts are not created equal. So that's that intuitive part is a really challenging part and the intuitive part of it as a leader that you're talking about is not to get analysis paralysis because you never have all the facts no no and it just takes too long you just keep asking for more facts there will always be more data there will always be more information there will always be more that's not where the the power lies the power lies in how do you make a decision almost at a meets men level What's the minimum amount of information and facts that you need to make the decision so you can make the decision faster? That's a great point. Instead of thinking, well, how much information can I get? But what's the minimum amount that I need in order to be able to move forward? And Harvard Business Review a few years ago did some research on why CEOs fail. And one of the primary reasons that they fail is because they don't make decisions fast enough. Just to your point. So this, I don't know if you knew that, Shelly, but you're, again, your intuition tells me that this is the whole thing. It's like, let's do research on this. We know intuitively you have to make decisions quickly as a CEO. And when I was turning organizations around, I will tell you that I would tell people, we're going to make decisions. We're going to make them quickly. We're probably going to make four to five times more decisions than what you're used to. My only hope is that eight out of the 10 decisions move us in a positive direction that overcomes the two bad decisions I'm going to make. So let's go. (laughs) Yeah, listen, it's true. I was really fortunate because I started my career in sales and so many of my leadership lessons, beliefs, philosophies came from sales. You know, I learned this whole fast versus slow thing from sales. I could get to 100% good and perfect, you know, proposal, presentation, numbers, everything else, and then be late. Late, so budget was gone, right? Priorities changed. And then you lose the deal. It's like, no, no. 80% good beats 100% perfect. Every time. As long as it's fast. Every day of the week. Um, So, yes. And you make a good point that a lot of CEOs uh, come from the sales side. And the reason they do is, I've, I've said this, sales and CEO positions are the only positions in a company that require daily proactivity. You have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, <laughs> what am I going to do today to move this company or move this sale or move this customer ahead? Every other position in an organization is reactive. It's reactive to the market. It's mm-hmm. reactive operations. It's reactive to something else going on. But sales and CEO, 
have to be proactive. So it's a mindset, right? Which means you, yep, you got to keep moving. And if you can't keep moving in sales, you're not going to be successful. It's that simple. Nope. So you learned it right. Nope. right They're not going to come to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, so I'm going to go back in history a little bit because you've got to know that you're a little bit of a unicorn. 16 year old young girls don't decide to be CEOs. And then if I remember my facts correctly, at 19, you decided, oh, look at the trends in technology. It's not just CEO, but it's CEO and technology, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> what was there? What brought, I mean, was there a moment that, why CEO? What what turned that switch ah, on? Well, you know, it was a fateful conversation with a guidance counselor, right? Here I am, it's your junior year obligatory conversation with a guidance counselor. Are you going to college? What do you want to do, right? And so, yes, my family, my father didn't have a college degree. So it's all about get, you know, get your education, do well, so you can go to a good college, so you can get a job. And that was it. So I was tracking right to that. And so, yes, college. So what do you want to do after college? And I said, I don't know. I said, I just want to be able to afford to keep my thermostat at 72 degrees. I want to be able to eat out in a restaurant and travel, right? That's what I wanted. And she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, easy clubs. I'm involved in all the clubs, American Field Service, National Honor Society, French Club, and I love to lead them. I'm president of this, vice president, right? And she said, oh, well, Shelly, you know, clubs and businesses are kind of like the same thing. Pull people together to get something accomplished. And I said, oh, Okay, well, if I like to lead clubs, I'll go lead a business. So when I looked up, the people who lead businesses were called CEOs. So I said, great, I'm going to go lead a company. I'm going to be a CEO. Now, Gary, did I know what that really meant? No, no, <laughs> I just picked it. Okay, I just picked it. But it became my goal. So I said, all right, that's what I'm going to go do. And then every decision I made after that point was one to say, how do I improve the odds for me to actually become a CEO? Because that's now my goal. You know, it's funny, we were talking earlier about this because I, I had a similar thing where I wanted to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And the, the problem is I have a horrible memory and a reading disability that really, I didn't have the talent to be a doctor. But I didn't become a medical doctor. But later on in life, I decided I was going to become a doctor and I became a doctor of business administration. So there's different paths, right? We we never give up those visions, okay? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm a CEO of my own company. So you just, you just never know how these things are going to fall out. But you, you had a very intentional approach, like right from the beginning, oh, that, yeah. that is remarkable in terms of your, your college, going to work, your first job. I was just listening today to your Planning 101, Chapter 39, and you were talking about the five parts of planning. And one of the parts was, you know, what are you going to do when you get out of high school and college? What's your first job? I think was the one. What's your first job? And uh, mm. I just want listeners to know that these five points that Shelly has in her book are well worth understanding. The the first job, uh, what you're going to do in in marriage or partnership, uh, what's your career look like? Are you going to have children? And what's the long term plan? Those are the five pieces. How did did just life experience come up with those five? Because I, I I love those five things for anybody that's listening. Got to dig into the questions. I love the questions and the examples that you give in your book that talk about these five things to help people make better decisions and plan their life earlier on. What what are your thoughts about that? You know, being intentional and planning it just worked so well for me. And what I find is most people don't. And there are so many critical decisions you make in life that set a path 
Whether you consciously made the decision or you didn't, it sets you on a path. So I was trying to suss out kind of some of those key areas that literally it's like, listen, if you just think about it proactively, you might help you make other decisions to actually line yourself up for with with what you're actually trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so those were the ones that I felt were having the most impact on the type of life uh, that you were going to have, the type of support that you might have, right? What you might need to be able to achieve and do the things that you want to do. So that's why I picked those five. I love it. I, at five steps. My Mine's the seven steps of intentional leadership. I had two more steps, but um, <laughs> but I love models like that because it's it's straightforward and anybody listening to that chapter can learn a lot to put that plan together and start to put it into to action in their life so that life doesn't just hit them. So one of the other things I want to talk about, I want to talk about apple pie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you want me to just jump in? I know, yeah. exa- I know exactly yeah, what you're talking about. Tell me about the apple pie. I don't know if it was a piece of apple yeah, pie that's or, all right. or custard. Or yeah. Apple pie will work. Yeah, apple pie yeah. will work. Um, so I've just set the scene. I am, gosh, I don't know. I'm at the time probably like 13, 14. I'm a, I'm a teenager. And I grew up in a household of very modest means. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she did everything. I mean, she made our clothes because it was cheaper to buy fabric than to buy ready-made clothes. Um, We didn't eat out. So everything we ate, mom cooked. And she made, we had a homemade dessert every night. And we also had chores. We had a whole caper chart, right? Of what day, what you had to do every day. I mean, this was not just one chore a week. It was a whole week's worth of chores. So anyway, on the day that I've got to do the dishes, I'm in the kitchen doing the dishes. We had six people in our family, so it's a lot of dishes. And I'm finally getting to the pie plate and I'm washing the pie plate. And I'm looking at this pie plate. Mom had made an apple pie that night. And, you know, you cut the pie and everybody reaches to grab the biggest piece because mom was also a very good cook. And I'm looking at this pie plate because my mom who's doing all this work. I mean, I never saw her slept, sleep. She was awake before we were you know, awake. She went to bed after we went to bed. She's always at the sewing machine, cooking. I'm always doing stuff. And she got the smallest piece of pie because she took the last piece, which of course, by definition, is going to be the smallest. And I'm thinking, no, no, it's not going to work for me. And I literally walked out there and said, mom, I made a decision. I am not having children. <laughs> she was like, what? What? She goes, sit down for a minute. What, what are you talking about? And I said, no, mom. I am not working as hard as you work with no sleep and no, not enough gratitude to all those things and get the smallest piece of pie. I'm not doing it. And she looked at me, I'll never forget. She looked at me and she said, Shelly, if I cared about that pie, I wouldn't have the smallest piece. I do not care about that pie. The key in life is to decide what you care about. And then go after that. Let the rest of it, mm. let the rest of it alone. Focus on what you want and go after it. Yeah. And you, you also talk about later on about how you, I think you talked to her about that. And I don't know if it was in this particular case about you felt that she was sacrificing. She was making all these sacrifices. Oh yeah. She straightened you out on that too, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, exactly. She, she did. She did. It comes back to really the same point, you know, in terms of choosing what you want, because like I said, you know, mom was up before we were a sewing machine, doing everything, driving, cooking. I mean, you never saw her rest and all that stuff. And I was just like, oh man, you know, all the sacrifices and stuff that you're making for, for us. Right. Um, and she said, no, no, life is just a series of choices. This is what I choose to do. 
so that I can, so that we can have what it is that we want to have. My father used to describe it as he would come home with his little paycheck and my mother would turn it into a life. So it was all about making the choices. So there were a lot of things that we didn't have, but we had everything Mm. that was important, everything Mm. that was important. And she was not sacrificing, right? She was making choices. And so those two things combined, you know, choose what you want, right? Let go of the rest is all about decision-making and choices, but they're your choices. Don't, don't, it's not a sacrifice for somebody else. Yeah. So, you know, bringing this back to leadership, what struck me as you were describing your mom, it was, she was a working CEO. She was the family, she was the family CEO. She kept everything moving, everything together, everything planned. And uh, at the same time, you know, feeding the family and taking care of you and making your clothes. It's just, it's just amazing. Oh, I mean, daddy, daddy would get paid and mom took care of all the bills and stuff. So we, he get paid and we all got our envelopes for our allowance, including daddy. I mean, we all got our little envelope for this is going to last us until next payday. <laughs> that I tell you, it sounds so much like my mom and dad. My mom took care of all the finances and did a lot of the things that you're talking about, raised five boys. And this was just the greatest generation. They talk about them being the greatest generation. They didn't see life as, as a chore. They saw life as a necessity. This is the way it is. And we'll do make the best of it. Which, which reminds me of one other thing in your book that I, I remember reading that I'd like you to talk about. And it's this idea that I think early on, again, with your mom, that life isn't fair. Life isn't fair, Shelly. I mean, you know, here, here you are, uh, you know, years ago, decades ago, thinking about the things that you want to think. In this country, in the uh, 70s and 80s, uh, African-American woman wanting to be a CEO in this country, and I'm not going to get into the uh, the racial part of this, although sometimes someday I'd like to. It's not going to be fair. Yeah, you know, as a, as a kid, things happen to you, and you come home and just tell your mom, like, "Mom, mom, this happened. It's not fair. It's not fair." And instead of just giving me a big hug and patting me on back and saying, "Oh, next time, right? We better, whatever." No, she just kind of look and say, "You're right, Shelley. Life's not fair." What? It's supposed to be fair. You get one, I get one. I mean, come on, it's supposed to be fair. No, not fair. Over, I mean, drumbeat over no. and over. Say anything. Life's not fair. Life's not fair. So, and but it was, then it was followed up with. So, what are you going to do about it? Right? What are you going to go do about it? And, and that's that the key. is the key. And that's why I knew early on that the odds were not in my favor. Right? Life's not fair. That's not in my favor. But that doesn't mean I can't do it. It just means I have to figure out how to improve the odds right? How do I play with the hand that I'm dealt? How do I improve it? And so planning, setting goals, that became my whole strategy and approach for how I improved those odds so that I could get what I wanted, despite the fact that, you know, I shouldn't have. (laughs) So let's, let's talk a little bit about business as we uh, like just kind of trans transition this into a little bit about business with metric stream. I'd like to go back to the beginning and you, you, you took over this, this company, uh, you got your CEO job <laughs> for this. <laughs> I noticed the hesitation. <laughs> this, because I remember reading in the book, people were saying, you're crazy. And uh, you say, no, That's this is right. my goal. I can, I can make this happen. And can you talk a little bit about some of the, the real epiphanies in the early days of what you had to do to build the team, to demonstrate leadership, to turn this around? Because this, this has got to be complicated. Oh, I mean, it was. I mean, just, just walking in. So imagine... You're now walking into a team that 
you know, three years ago was this high flying team. They'd raised a hundred million dollars. And this is back in 99, 2000. So that was a lot of money then, right? Um, they raised all this money that a darling of Silicon Valley and all the high profile people had come to join. And several years later now, they're struggling. They are hemorrhaging money. People have been leaving, right? It's a mess. So it's demoralized. So you walk into this team that's like, okay, they've just been through this battle that nobody expected to actually be in. So the first step was actually to provide the the inspiration and the hope. Because when you have people who are demoralized, I mean, plan won't matter. Strategy won't matter. That'll matter if they don't see the inspiration and the hope. So you have to be able to do that. And then you have to be able to position where you are and where you need to go in a way that also doesn't Again, demoralize them. You can't walk in and say, well, you guys have just screwed up (laughs) and I'm here to fix it. I mean, what? That doesn't work. So, figuring out how you thread that needle, you know, and the way I threaded that needle was they had created some amazing technology. It's just the market didn't want it. And so, the way I framed it Mm. was they, they fell into the classic challenge. They fell in love with their product. And as a result, they built an amazing product. You know, but it's just like falling in love with your baby. You fall in love with your baby, and nobody can tell you that baby's ugly. Oh, perfect, the most beautiful perfect. baby, right? And nobody can tell you, oh, no, no, she's she, no, she's fine. Just look at her in the right light. You know, no, oh, no, absolutely. That little, I mean, just right. I mean, come on, we, we justify, we defend. Well, when you fall in love with your product, that's exactly what happens. No, no, we need to fall in love with the market. When we fall in love with the market, then we want to care and nurture and make sure the market has everything it needs. And right, that's what we need to do. So I took what they had done and showed them how, listen, what you've done, given that you fell in love with the product was amazing, but now we've got to fall in love with the market. So working through, Mm. throughout the journey, just being able to come up with how you communicate position and, and get people to move forward in a way that is energizing right? In a way that is growth oriented is I think one of the key challenges to turning something around. And then the next is figuring out what problem are you actually going to solve? <laughs> I mean, we didn't, have, I didn't have a problem to solve. So I had to go figure out a problem for us to solve as a company that was going to be meaningful and that would support an actual business. So that was the next big challenge. And once figured out the problem that needs to be solved, great. Now here's the problem. Now, how do we solve the problem? Um, leveraging the technology, putting the right people together in the team, and then convincing a whole new set of investors that, yes, I know you I know you pitched in $100 million and that's kind of gone, but hey, we've got a brand new opportunity here. So all of those things in the first few years were daunting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I can remember in the book where at one point, if I remember correctly, you had to, uh, you took a pay cut. Oh, yeah. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine coming home to your stay-at-home spouse and saying, if I don't hey, pay myself for a, for year. a while, yeah, for a year, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That think? must have been a fun. But I, I think that uh, that's one of the things that you you talk about in taking risk is the support that you had. Oh, huge! That you you made these decisions, you made them together, and some of the conversations that you share in the book are just they're just awesome. And uh, the kinds of conversations that all of us in a marriage should make sure that we have all the time. So. I, I wrote down some of the things as you're talking about this inspiration and hope, the first step inspiration, and hope. So uh, in strength-based leadership by, by uh, Gallup, they talk about followers are looking for four things, trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Th- those, you know, st- you have to build the trust through the relationships. You have to demonstrate compassion when people screw up and they, they know that they're not going to get their head chopped off. 
you got to create some stability and based (laughs) on your chief marketing uh, positions and sales positions in the past, you started to focus more and change the perspective on the market rather than the product. So you change the way people see what they're doing. And I'm sure you lost some people that said you're wrong, Shelly, and and they left. Right. I mean, and that's okay. It's like Mm -hmm. you're part of the team or not. You in or you out, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to make a decision. It's okay if you're out, but don't stay in. As I've always said, the ones that quit Mm -hmm. and stay are the ones that are going to do the most damage. It's not the ones that quit and go. So you want them to quit and Mm -hmm. and go, but you shifted that perspective. And I look at trust, compassion, stability, and hope is that someday we have faith that someday we're going to get there. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And I think when people start to see the vision and shift the perspective like you did is probably what you started to see. It's a slow moving thing, right? It kind of kind of takes time. And yeah, for sure. was, was there a time when you felt, you know, there's got to be a moment when you felt, I think we're getting there. I think we've got something here. Yeah. It's all about attracting talent. When, in my opinion, I mean, the market tells you when you're getting there and the market tells you when you're getting there, when you're able to actually attract, um, you know, great talent in terms of the, to the team and um, bring people on board because great talent is choices. They have choices and they're not going to pick something that's not, they don't think is a great you know opportunity. Why would they do that? So yeah, to me, talent tells you. Yeah. So I've got two final questions for you. And sure. The first question is the one that I always ask everybody that comes on my show. And that is, uh, Shelly, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to yourself 30 years, let's say. And it says, dear Shelly, what would you say to yourself? I'd say, don't take yourself so seriously. Imposter syndrome, everybody feels. It's not you. It's the world. Mm. And three, take your vacation. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, it's funny because I, in this pandemic time, I didn't take a vacation last year. I was so busy and everything. And I, because I have all these events that I normally had, tennis and I would go play poker Mm -hmm. in Vegas with my brother and hang out with my sons and the the grandkids. Couldn't do any of that. I, Shelly, I forgot. So I I already started taking your advice. I took a vacation in March and I've got another one scheduled next month. So (laughs) get back in. Very good. Very good. And I'm doing this. I'm listen, I'm doing the same thing. I don't think any of us really took real vacations last year. So, yeah. My, my final question for you is when I look at all that you've accomplished and the things that you're doing now, it's like, what's next for Shelly? What are you, what are you thinking that you want to do? You had a vision at 16 of being a CEO and so on. So you had to kind of this vision and then you set this plan. What are you planning in the future now? Mm. So this phase of my life is all about impact and inspiration. Mm. If I'm not providing impact or inspiring somebody, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And the place that I'm focused on is I spent the first, you know, whatever, 40 years of my life, 50 years of my life telling the universe what I wanted. Now I'm listening to the universe to figure out what it wants for me. And what I'm hearing more than anything is people want mentoring, career advice, right? Life advice. And I'm trying to figure out how do you do that at scale? Because I do that, but you only touch so many people. So is there a way to do it at scale? So anyway, that's, yeah. that's what I'm working on. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I think it's easy to do at scale. Uh, cause I'm going to tell you chapter 39, you could take chapter 39 <laughs> and turn it into a workshop. I mean, it, it, 
do it online. And we, we've, we've got the five steps, right? Uh, I've got it right here. What's your first job? What's your marriage or your partnership? What are you going to do with your career, your children, and your long-term plans? There it is. Let's put it together. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Shelly Archambault, I am just so excited and pleased to have you on the show today and to share this podcast with all of my my listeners. And we'll get this out there as soon as possible because I want people to hear from you. And I also want people to buy your book, Un- Unapologetically Ambitious. It's available on Amazon. We'll put information in the show notes so that they grab that information and prolifically buy your book, I hope. Well, thank you. I definitely appreciate the support. And yes, that was my first step in trying to, to share at scale. So yeah. Thank you. It's a good step. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.